Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is for week 12 of BYU's fall semester 2021. I'm Devin Glenn, producer of From the Booth and former BYU Chinese Club president, and I'm joined today by Brian Stai, founder of research-china.org. Brian became familiar with China's international adoption program in 1998 when he adopted his eldest daughter. He founded research-china.org in 2003 after adopting his second daughter and formed dnaconnect.org, a nonprofit sister organization, in 2013. In the past 20 years, he and his wife, Lan, have traveled all over China researching Chinese adoptees' histories including the location and reunification of adoptees with their birth families. Welcome, Brian. It's a pleasure to be there with you. We're glad you're here with us today. Today we are talking with Brian about how his work in China ties into Wang Nanfu and Jiang Jialin's powerful documentary, One Child Nation. Brian, for those who have not seen the film yet, would you give a brief overview of what your experiences with the One Child policy and the process of adoption in China have been? Okay. We were contacted by Jia Ling in 2017 to work with them and produce this movie. I mean, we weren't, you know, producers or anything, but they asked us if we could help. And we were excited. I'd seen Nan Fu's previous film, uh, Hooligan Sparrow, and I loved the way she was able to connect herself personally into the story. I felt it was a very powerful way of presenting a documentary. Mm. So often, you know, the documentary and the, the people filming are outside the story filming in, but Nanfu, her creative, you know, way of producing and filming the film is to be in the story. And so we were impressed by that. And we thought that that would be a good vehicle to communicate our story as it related to China adoption. So we agreed. And the first time we filmed uh, was in July 2018. At that time, the film was going to be about the one child policy, and it was going to document the reunification of an adoptee with a birth family in China that we had located and matched. So the filming kind of centered on that family. And the one child policy was, of course, used as the backdrop. And we can get into this, but the adoption community was not overly welcome to the idea of this documentary. And so the family ultimately backed out. After they'd been filmed in China and everything, they decided not to participate. Wow. So that left a very significant hole in the film. And so during one of the filming sessions, while they were here in Utah, we suggested, you know, these stories are so common. You ought to see if there's a possibility of filming a story from your own family. Go back to China and see if, you know, these things happened even in your own family. And Nanfu, in a little bit of a hat tip in the film, says after we'd spoken with Brian, you know, and she brings her son back to China. And indeed, as you see in the film, the one child policy greatly impacted her family. And so that became a whole different film and a much more powerful film. Ignoring my participation, my, me and my wife's participation in the film, the film really is gorgeously filmed, powerful, and you leave it with a much deeper understanding of, of the issues within China 
regarding the one-child policy. It, it's really a fabulous documentary. Absolutely. That was one of the things that really stood out to me as I watched the documentary as well, is the way that Nanfu really doesn't hide her personal feelings and her personal connections to the story and its larger consequences. I love some of the shots in the film where she she looks at herself in the mirror holding the camera, yeah, you know, exactly. and, and talking with her brother, talking with her, her, her relatives. And I, I think it's powerful that she left in the sound of her own voice as well, asking those questions. Often within documentaries, we kind of get this sterilized version of just, you know, answers. But I love that she included herself in that narrative. And by being able to include her family members in the film, she got a much more truthful story. They trusted her. They didn't have their guard up like so many would if some just random filmmaker came in. Yeah, absolutely. The incorporating of her own story in this film made it the great film that it is. There's no question that it wouldn't have been nearly as powerful or well-received if it had gone on its original trajectory. And I think you make an excellent point as well, talking about how her own family members were able to be more open with her about this sensitive, emotional topic. And I think we see a good counterpoint to that when she goes, when Nanfu goes to talk to the the village leader and after she's done talking with him his wife gets very defensive and even even kind of a little passive aggressively makes threats and i think there's just such an interesting juxtaposition between that interaction and the interaction she's able to have with her aunts and her uncles and her mother and and her grandpa indeed amazing so within your own experiences especially with those involving your daughters how do you feel the one-child policy has played a part? Well, a lot of people, especially Westerners, including myself, approached the idea that girls were given up as a result of the one-child policy as, as somehow not valuing girls. The idea is that there was a cultural diminishment of females inside China. And we have found that this is absolutely not the case. The one-child policy is an economic system. And by forcing through legislation, fees, penalties, you know, all kinds, forced sterilizations and everything that non-food presents, it really required birth families to make hard decisions. And culturally, males in China have certain legal benefits. So, for example, when a child is born in China in the countryside, the family is given an acre of farmland to the family. Hmm. Um, That acre is designed to be farmed so that the family will have food for that child. The difference comes in as to when that child gets married. If it's a boy, the land stays in the family and that becomes the male's land on which he will then begin to farm for his future family. If it's a female child that was born, the government takes the land back. So already there is an economic advantage to boys just in the heritability of land inside China. Another well-known advantage is that boys culturally are responsible for taking care of his parents. Mm. Um, and so there's, gonna, there's an economic benefit derived there for, for families to have a boy because not only, as Don Fu points out in the film so powerfully, not only does it pass on the family name, but it also is a, a retirement 
benefit, an economic retirement benefit. Whereas the girl traditionally is viewed as, as leaving and moving to another area where the husband originates and taking care of his family. Now in, in real practice, it's not that clear, of course. You know, my wife and her sisters take very good care of, you know, her parents, but that's the, the cultural understanding. And so there was a structure built within China that forced families basically economically to favor boys over girls. And then when you cap it at one child, tough decisions need to be made. It's not that families didn't emotionally connect with the female baby less than the male baby. It's just that there was economic realities that came in that forced them to make very difficult decisions. Mm, I think that's a fascinating point to make that this idea of or placing greater value on men than on women isn't necessarily a personal one, but is rather one that's set up by the, the economic structure found within China. I think that's that's a really, really important point to make. So I guess within my own experiences, I, I have several friends that are from mainland China, and it's always interesting to me when I talk to some of them, obviously some of my friends are only children, I do have a couple of friends that have younger siblings. And it's interesting to me that one of my friends in specific, she lives in Chengdu, and she is the middle child. She has an older sister and a younger brother. And I also have another friend who lives in Guangdong, and she has a younger brother, and it's just the two of them. And and kind of the trend that I've seen, and obviously it's been more than just those two friends, but the trend that I have seen is that these families tend to come from, you know, maybe a more wealthy background. So they're mm-hmm. able to pay the the fines with having more than just one or two children. But it's also really interesting to me that it, it seems like they're trying for a boy. And once they, they have a boy, then they're done. Do you have any insights into that trend as it might relate to, you know, economic background of the family as well, if they're able to pay those fees or not? Your observation is spot on. I mean, most vast majority of families that we have located in China, the first girl was a a female. They may try for a second child. That might be a female. They might try for a third and fourth child trying to get the boy. So getting a boy that will allow them to keep the land, getting a boy that will take care of them in their old age, getting a boy that will carry on the family name is definitely an end goal. It's what happens between the first and the boy that varies from family to family. And you're right, money played a big role in that. If a family was wealthy and they could pay the fines, then they were able to keep that over quota girl and try again for another boy. If they didn't have the money or the political clout, I should add, their mm. money wasn't the only currency, mm-hmm. um, but relationships are also played an important role. If, if a family didn't have either money or or local clout, then, you know, they were forced to look for another avenue for that second daughter so that they would have the, the, the space in the family to have another child, and hopefully that would be a boy. And so most of the families, very few families actually went and, and abandoned children on the street. And that was my one, I guess, the one thing about the film that was a little bit inconsistent with reality, shall we say, is that Hmm. um, in talking with the trafficker, you know, he made it sound like he was just finding these kids on the street. 
history, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> uh, showed that that's, that's not what happened. I mean, of course, as a convicted trafficker, yeah, he didn't want to open himself up to other legal jeopardy. But mm. um, the families generally would find a other family in the area that was childless, that maybe couldn't have biological children. And they would then approach that family and say, hey, can you take care and raise our daughter? So most of the families sought out other families to help take care of the children, to adopt them. And mm -hmm. so it was not a common situation where the family said, oh, let's just go to the school and leave this child on the street, you know, and try again. They, they sought avenues to take care of the child. In terms of the, the fines that families have to pay if they have more than one child, and I guess now today, two children. Do you have any idea of ballpark range of what those fines might cost? It really was dependent on the local family planning official. Their only metric on which they were judged professionally was their over quota rate. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether they were able to control the over quota through taking a pig from the family or having the family take them out to dinner or whether it was levying a, an $80,000 uh, fine on them was up to the local official. So it would, mm. the range could be anywhere from hardly anything to a financially crippling fee. And so it, it was very much locally administered. And that was the problem, is that some family planning officials were very compassionate and understanding of their, the families in their area, and others felt that they were the king uh, or mm. the emperor, if you will, and and treated the families in their area accordingly. And so that's where you get these stories of forced abortions and, and everything, because those family planning officials felt that, you know, country over <laughs> over uh, over people, you know, and, yeah. uh, and and exacted a high price from the people there in order to, in their minds, get them to obey the one child policy. Yeah, that was one of the moments in the film that really hit home for me is when Nanfu is talking with the artist who who made the different representation of the fetuses that he found as he as he went out looking at garbage under the bridge. And when he talked about country over self and how this kind of indoctrination can kind of be put into effect, I guess there are always two sides to everything. We often talk about how Within America, at least, we, we definitely favor individualism as opposed yeah. to collectivism. Within your experience in China and within the, the adoption process, what are some of the positive things you've seen from collectivism and some of the negative things that you've seen come from collectivism? Well, see, this is a great topic to study because, yes, Americans historically and culturally and politically are very individualistic my rights over all. Mm. And we're seeing the downside to that right today in our, in our own country, yes. um, where people are putting the community at jeopardy in order to protect what they view to be their own rights. Mm -hmm. um, China, on the other hand, the people are sincerely viewing what's good for the country over what's good for me. And so, you know, somewhere in the middle, is, is the happy spot, you know, and I don't know where that necessarily is. But one of the things that's very attractive about China as a country is that sense of community. 
that everybody is part of a greater whole and that, you know, everybody needs to work to make China successful as a complete country. Whereas uh, in the United States, we all do what we need to do to make ourselves successful, even if it hurts the country. And so it's a yin and yang kind of thing Mm. where both sides have advantages, but neither one has a monopoly on the, the best good. You know, mm-hmm. and it's 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 fascinating to uh, to look at that. As I was going and looking through research-china.org, and I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to go and look at it as well. There's some fascinating resources found on that website. I found a a quote that I thought was so interesting and so well said, and it's a, a very short quote, but I feel like it, it encapsulates a lot. It says. We believe in discovering our daughter's histories one child at a time. And I, I love this construction of that sentence because it, it brings in, you know, that collective idea of our daughters not just being the daughters, your own daughters, Brian, but that there is a legacy of of daughters from China and around the world that don't know what their heritage is and are actively seeking for it. What has been your experience as as you've engaged with some other families that are trying to discover their children's past? Well, it's interesting because, you know, in the film, we wanted to, the reason we participated in the film was specifically the idea that we wanted adoptees to see that an alternative history was probable. Mm -hmm. Um, So when a child is adopted by a Western family, they're told by the orphanage, okay, your daughter was found at this and this place, at this and this age. And universally, the child is, is told through that documentation that they were physically abandoned by their birth families. Mm. And that creates among the adoptee, the adoptee community a little bit of a reluctance or uh, anger, I mean, is the purest word, toward their birth family. They left me. They abandoned me. They did not protect me as a baby. Who knows what could have happened to me? And there is a, a internalized anger. We participated in the documentary to hopefully convey to them that adoptee population, it's probably not what happened. Open your heart and realize that your birth family almost certainly struggled with this decision and that they almost certainly arranged for you to to you know, be cared for continuously. You were never left on the side of the road. And so that's why the adoption community is the whole, but each child's story is literally unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and as to how they came into the orphanage, it's very, very very little commonality as to you know what what happened and so as we find these birth families as we test them and as we locate their children in the in the west we're able to compare what the orphanage told the adoptee happened with what the birth family says actually happened and they to date have never matched wow and so that was what we were wanting to convey in the documentary wow that is powerful. Have you, within this process, had any success in locating any of these adoptees' birth parents, or are the records just so muddled and riddled with corruption that, that it's been nearly impossible? Good question, Devin. Now, there's two ways of looking at 
the searching. There's the bottom up way, which is when you get an adoptee and you say, okay, let's try to find this adoptee's birth family, this mm -hmm. specific adoptee, whether it's my daughter, Megina, or, or you know anybody. In those situations, because of the trafficking, because of the laundering of the children that occurred by the orphanages, it's very difficult to find a specific birth family. So that's why in 2013, we decided to invert the pyramid and say, let's stop looking for particular birth families. Let's just now start looking for any birth family. Mm. And so we've located almost 700 birth families, tested them. And as a result of the DNA test, we're able to reunite over 100 adoptees with those birth families. So that's really the future because it's very difficult to trust the information provided by the orphanage to the adoptees in order to make a fruitful search. It's going to be much more successful to just locate birth families generally and test them and hope that the adoptee will one day test. And that's the key is now the movement is let's get all the Chinese adoptees to do a DNA test so that they can be reunited with these birth families. That's amazing. So if I remember right, the organization DNAConnect.org was founded in 2013. Was that really the point when DNA testing made this possible? What, what advances in DNA testing have positively impacted yeah. the work that you're doing? Prior to 2008, Lon and I would visit orphanages, take pictures of finding locations, and document for the adoptee their pre-adoption history. In 2008, we did our first birth parent search where a group of families from an orphanage in China said, can you go back to China and find my daughter's birth family, a bottom-up approach? And so we did, and there was a, about nine families in the project that wanted to find these birth families. And we went and followed the information in the adoption paperwork and networked and so on. And we were able to find six or seven birth families that we thought matched the nine. And we thought, man, that's pretty good, pretty good success. Well, at that time, the only DNA test that was available was a simple paternity test, which is where you take a cotton swab from the parent, take a cotton swab from the child, send them together to the lab. The lab compares those two samples and determines, yes, it's a match, there's a relationship, or no, there's no relationship. It's a thumbs up, thumbs down test in 2008. Mm. Well, in 2009, 23andMe came on the scene, and they had a completely revolutionary DNA testing, which is autosomal DNA. So now, rather than looking at 27 markers like the paternity test did, they look at 800,000 markers. Wow. And so not only could you determine whether a, a relationship parent to child existed, but you could do a relationship of siblings, first cousins, aunts, uncles, second cousins. I mean, you can in, light up the entire family tree with the autosomal testing. And not only that, but the most important thing is, is that DNA could be data banked. And that was the crucial difference is with the old paternity testing, it was a one and done. If I went out and found another adoptee that potentially matched that birth father or birth mother, I'd have to go back to China, retest them, get that cotton swab and, and submit it with that new adoptee's DNA. Very labor intensive, hugely inefficient. But 23andMe and the following companies allowed you to data bank the data, the DNA, so that 
somebody randomly down the road could submit their DNA to the same database and it would match and you'd be notified of the match. So 23andMe, I mean, revolutionized doesn't even come close to, to articulating it. They, they completely changed the trajectory of how birth families would be located in China. And in 2013, we organized our nonprofit to take advantage of that technology. That's incredible. So grateful for modern technology and all the, the avenues that it's been able to open. Yeah. In one of my Chinese classes at BYU, we read an article from the Washington Post, which reported that out of China's population of 1.4 billion, there are nearly 34 million more men than women. This is a massive data set. Are you familiar with how the Chinese government collects this sort of information on such a large scale? In addition, what are some of the immense ramifications you see that come from such a gaping gender disparity? Well, I've always been somewhat skeptical of those uh, missing girls, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of a lot of issues with how those numbers are generated. So there's surveys done. Family planning officials will go through the villages and count how many children and the genders of each child and so on. And families need to self-report and and all mm-hmm. this. And so there's a lot of possibility of inaccuracy, let's just say. If I am a, a father and my wife and I have a child and we're not able to care for that child because of the one-child policy and we bring it to my sister's house, bring her to my sister's house, my sister is not going to report that daughter to the government. That's why she's hidden. And so for years, my daughter would be invisible to the government. And so they do their surveys and they do their counts and my daughter is not on their records. And so she is Mm. one of the 34 million missing daughters. Now, the interesting thing about those numbers is that as you progress in age, the disparity is greatest between zero and six years old. It begins to narrow from six to 10 and older than 10. And why? Because that's when you need to register a child for school. That's when the rubber meets the road for for this child. Am I going to be able to educate this girl? And to educate, she has to be on government records. And so it's at that point that a lot of the families either have saved up the fee or done whatever they need to do to get the child on to the government rolls. And so the disparities begins to decline the older the population that you're looking at is. And that shows that there is a lot of hidden children, that not that they're not there, but they're just hidden from the government. And it never bring, comes to parity because many kids remain hidden for their entire lives. They never enter the government records because of costs or whatever. And so what is the true gender disparity? Nobody knows. It's impossible to calculate. There is probably a gender disparity, an artificial gender disparity, let's just say outside Mm -hmm. of the natural gender disparity. But how great it is and what the impact of that's going to have on Chinese culture, it's uh, tea leaves and crystal balls. I mean, nobody really knows. Yeah, that's a great point to make that within a system that perpetuates this kind of needing to hide in order to survive. Yep. It's very hard to get realistic data from that. Yeah. In terms of looking forward into the future, do you feel that this problem within China is getting better with the newer generations or is it just kind of perpetuating upon itself? What is what is your take on that? 
Well, this was one of the most powerful scenes. And I, I don't want to spoil the, in fact, I'm going to ignore it because the book ending that Nan Fu has in her documentary is so incredibly powerful that it's like this, you know, the ending to the sixth sense. You, you just don't want to let anybody know about it. It'll ruin the experience. But she addresses the change. The government 2015 realized we've been too effective in our curbing of population growth. And so there's a need to loosen the reins a little bit, to take the foot off the brake, if you will. And so in 2015, they announced that instead of having just one child, they can have two. And now, even in some areas, it's like, yeah, whatever, have as many kids as you want. The difficulty has been that for 10 years or 20 years, most people have grown up with this idea that we have a pie and that if you cut the pie into fewer pieces, each piece will be bigger. And so if I have only one child, they're going to have the entire pie and they're going to be successful and I can educate them well as a parent and so on. And so that's now become the ingrained attitude. Most birth families in China are content with having one or at most two. And so now the, the government is experiencing the opposite problem that they've had since 1979. They're not no longer needing to even tap the brake. Now they're trying to push the gas pedal. And the Chinese birth families inside China, by and large, are saying, yeah, you know, we're going fast enough. We're happy. And so the population growth has not increased significantly since loosening the one-child policy, and nor do I feel it probably will until most of China is an affluent society that can afford to educate more than one child, three or four children, which is generations away. Now, the cultural understanding of the preference of boys over girls has also changed. Most of the birth families that we've talked with, it wasn't the birth parents themselves that made the decision to relinquish a child. It was the grandparents the traditionalists, the mm. grandfather in Nanfu's film, who I have to say, I every time I hear him, I just am amazed that he thinks the way he does. But mm. that is the old, the old understanding. That old understanding is rapidly vanishing from Chinese culture. And the westernized understanding, the, the one that's been brought by American films and, and everything to China is that, you know, boy or girl, it is the same. They've internalized that. And so a lot's going to change in the next you know, 20 years as this generation moves up and becomes grandparents. I think that overall, China is in a good place culturally and with their population. I, I think that not much is going to change in that regard. Thank you so much for your insights, Brian. It has been a pleasure talking with you about Nanfu's thought-provoking documentary and your own experiences with adoption in China. It's been a pleasure, Devin. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our sound engineer Marina Hegstrom-Pratt and Johnny Stallings who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. Until next week, keep watching great international films.